Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is going to be brilliant today. Before we say a single word, I want to say that if there is a French historian out there who has dedicated many years to researching Napoleon in a sensible way and would like to come on and talk about his life with us, we would welcome you with open arms and give you a platform to discuss him. But we don't have one of those right now. What we have on a Sunday morning, I know I'm hungover, I don't know about Marcus and Zach, we have Zach White who is a Napoleonic historian. He's our Napoleonic correspondent, basically. Our little Napoleonic god, um, a Wellingtonian god, because he doesn't want to be a little god without a penis. And uh, we have Marcus Cribb as well, who is one of the managers at Apsley House and therefore has not got a lot of time for Napoleon. And they are going to bring you, on this Sunday morning that we're recording, a Brit's Guide to Napoleon. Guys, are you ready? Definitely. Uh, I feel like this is going to be the death knoll of my entire career. And if I ever walk into a room full of Napoleon fans, they're all just going to want to kill me. But uh, yeah, let's do it. You never yeah, wanted to go to France support. anyway, did you? Well, he's not going to get his passport now, is he? Zach's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a pocket academic, whereas I can give guided tours and declare my bias. And uh, it, it's my it's my house and so my rules. So I, I just feel sorry for Zach after this. Excellent. Right. Okay. As we said, anyone who wants to come on and have a sensible chat about Napoleon, we will do it. But this is a Brit's guide to Napoleon. I can't wait for this. Right, guys, you're going to talk uh, topically going through his life, aren't you? Um, And you're going to rotate between who does the sensible stuff and who basically takes him apart. So let's start with his birth. Marcus, this did not occur in France, did it? No, the great hero, Aaron of France. He's not even French. He gets born the same year that in Corsica, that um, Corsica is given from uh, Genoa, so Italy, to France. Uh, in fact, his parents are early on involved in um, independence for Corsica from France. So he's brought up amongst all of these and uh, is deeply divided. In fact, in his younger life, he's got this huge family and uh, there's quite a few of them, including uh, Napoleon himself. Uh, who has a dalliance with joining the Royal Navy back in Britain to fight against France. Um, so <laughs> that would have turned our history a bit differently if he'd been at Trafalgar on our side. Um, but he's not even uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. He's Napoleon Bonaparte. He is got, he's Italian-blooded uh, from minor aristocrats. 
but because he doesn't like people associating him with the Italian spelling of his name, because he's a hang up with this all the way through his life. Um, he speaks with this very kind of thick Italian accent. Um, and in the, just before his Italian campaign in the mid 1790s, he deliberately changes the spelling of his name. So he drops the E off of the end of Napoleon and he drops the U out of the middle of Bonaparte so that it looks more French. Um, and it comes, it goes back to his time at, at military college where he was bullied quite relentlessly for the fact that he was um, essentially not typical French. And he, this, this whole thing that Marcus mentions about um, in the, the course can move for independence possibly leads to him having sort of daddy issues. Um, we can't be certain because there's so much kind of myth surrounding Napoleon's early life anyway. And there isn't a lot of documentation for it. But what happens is that initially the family had a strong allegiance to the leader of the Corsican independence movement, a guy called Poli. And um, Poli had to go into exile after the French kind of asserted their control over Corsica. But Napoleon's dad didn't. He kind of accepted um, amnesty and sort of ingratiated himself into French society, which is part of the reason why Napoleon's able to go to military college anyway. Um, but he, he kind of ends up having this issue with his father in sort of um, betraying the cause of Napoleon, of um, Corsican independence. And there's an interesting kind of irony to all of this, because in 1790, he goes back to Corsica to uh, meet up with Poli, who's been able to go back after the revolution in 89. And they end up having a falling out over the execution of um, the, the king. And Napoleon's family has to flee Corsica, never to go back. Uh, so he kind of ends up being stabbed in the back by his own hero. So it, it's an interesting little kind of psychological dynamic going on there right from the start. Firstly, I suspect there were many reasons he was bullied. And second, one of them being that he was so short. And one of the, and also... Oh, was, but that's a myth. God, is he not that. short? Oh, He's I not really short, no. Oh, he wasn't four foot eleven and fighty. Yeah, no, he was propaganda is yeah. um, really good at the time, especially when you've got Duke of Wellington, who's very slim, very slight, like tiny by uh, even modern standards, uh, and Napoleon, who's like five foot six, which is like average height is like five foot seven. He is just below, but a lot of his marshals are pushing on towards like the five foot eleven, six foot uh, mark. So compared to Wellington, compared to his like peers. He looks quite small. And just like today, where we've got like comics in the press, we got comics back then. In fact, actually, if anything, they were really punchy. as a pun, the punch magazine. <laughs> um, and uh, they were really, really good at displaying him as short, fat. In fact, linking in, they called him the Corsican fiend. And you often have him like displayed with like little devil horns. Um, <laughs> and people started to believe it. It was actually so far that people, uh, the mothers would be going, you know, eat all your uh, dinner before you go to bed or Napoleon would come out and get you. He was the ogre. It was a really popular uh, belief that persists to a degree today. Yeah, I it love definitely it. turned into like a little goblin. It helps that you've got a guy called James Gilray producing characters at this time and Gilroy was an absolute genius in how he put together his cartoons um full of satire these neat little references so beautifully detailed 
Um, and, and that really does help to kind of create this image of Napoleon as this tiny little guy. He is actually called the little corporal by his soldiers, but it's thought that that might more likely have been a term of endearment. Yeah, probably. Because actually, one Napoleon of was never a corporal. So, you know, the, the name work never kind of works out. Let's talk about baby Napoleon, little Napoleon, when he actually was like physically little as in a child, uh, because it turns out he wasn't short and that makes me very sad. Turns out he was just fractionally taller than me, which makes me really sad. That's like when I met N'Golo Kante and he was still taller than me and I felt really, really small. Anyway, um, <clears throat> was there, were there any signs at the Ecole Militaire that he was going to turn out to be an utter psycho? Yes. There, there were signs. Before. <laughs> yeah, but not <laughs> a successful <laughs> psycho. Like, my, my main thing about his time at the Ecole Militaire is he's not that good. Um, he actually kind of wanted to go and join maybe the French Navy, uh, and that stops being a bit more elite. Uh, he's in a class of 52, uh, 52 officer cadets, students at this the Ecole Militaire in France, and he comes uh, graduates as 40 seconds. So he's in the bottom 20%. Uh, he's not great. But that's like, Hitler wasn't very great either, which certainly wasn't any good at bloody art. But uh, Hitler was not obviously setting the world alight uh, at school. And you, you find this a lot with these. Do you think it's compensating? it is but not kind of compensating in the way that we might normally discuss on history hack if you know what Mm. i mean yeah um (laughs) not that we're at all prone to the smart we'll we'll get to the private parts later i'm sure um (laughs) save that for the end keep people listening um he came from quite a big family and what that meant was that he was constantly competing with his older brothers which meant he tried to kind of dominate physically um, over his brothers, constantly fighting, whether it's with his schoolmates, with his brothers, whoever it might be, had to be the best at everything, whether it was climbing a tree or or being best at maths, which was the only subject where he seemed to be really good. Um, And that carried through into um, the Ecole Militaire. But ironically, he was a complete loner. So you have this image of Napoleon, this glorious guy who everybody kind of has this infatuation with actually at school nobody wanted to know him like we've said already that he was bullied for the fact that he wasn't kind of classically french he came from minor nobility and had probably had a chip on his shoulder about that there's this whole thing about him being dedicated to course independence amongst uh, a peer group who were from the nobility of ancien regime france they were completely invested in monarchy and, and nation mm-hmm. and so they had no interest in this kind of course independence Thing. and he just seemed like a bit of a weirdo to them um, and even his teachers were kind of going why is he so fixated with Corsican independence he, he really needs to kind of get over this Napoleon a bit of a weirdo, bit of a weirdo. <laughs> when, when they're all going out drinking trying to charm the ladies he's sitting in his room reading I think he has a stab at like writing one or two novels um, and they say oh he reads so much and he goes you know it just it just goes on and on about him sitting in the room by himself and everyone else is out enjoying the, the highlights of you know Parisian life and really living it up large he doesn't and so socially very strange you can kind I of do. imagine by modern standards that one kid in the in the corner <laughs> doodling in their notebook in, in class it's probably us to be honest yeah this is exactly what I was thinking I mean I've got no <laughs> issue with him being a, a bookworm um But the thing about Napoleon is everybody kind of talks about his military prowess and his ability. But because he spends so much time reading, he basically steals loads of other people's ideas 
and that makes them work for himself. And so everybody talks about Napoleon's genius. His genius essentially is to take other people's concepts and make them work. <laughs> His it's genius that... is plagiarism. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he makes a career out of it. I mean, really, people should kind of take note. I do have to ask, though, uh, Marcus, he did venture out occasionally. Prostitutes. Prostitutes, yeah. He, he, he he's not doing very well with the women. So uh, he tries to go out. He's By this point, he's pretty penniless as well. His, his dad's passed away and not left him any money, but... He decides he's going to try to, you know, get his Lego for the first time. Uh, he's living in Paris. And he basically fails. He fails to pay a woman for sex. Uh, if you fail to get laid in Paris by with money in your pocket, yeah. ouch. I mean, we talk about socially awkward. He's literally going out with a bag of money and then not it. Still coming back a virgin. Or just bumbling a bit so much <laughs> that he doesn't really manage it. Oh, dear. Right, Zach, Toulon. Too long, right? Too long's the first time that Napoleon kind of gets to make a name for himself. Um, it comes in the wake of his family having to flee Corsica. So by this point, Napoleon's kind of given up on the whole Corsican independence thing, and he's started to get sort of emotionally and um, kind of career focused about spending his his time in the French army and the city of Toulon. Um, there's a, I should say that there's a change of government and there's a revolt. There's a royalist revolt, and Toulon is one of the um, the towns that declares for the royalists um, to try and restore the French monarch to the throne. And they get support from the Royal Navy, a uh, fleet under Hood uh, comes in and supplies them and helps to kind of organise the defence. And the, the the French government kind of looks at this and quite clearly needs to retake the city, partly because a big chunk of the French Mediterranean fleet is based in, in Toulon. And so Napoleon turns up and this is one of those times where he actually does really well for himself and it's literally just him. It does help that he has the ear of some key people in the government um, and he's able to constantly kind of badge them and, and push for basically essentially saying his, his superiors are incompetent and people need to follow his plan because his plan is the best. In fairness, he has got this really dynamic plan. And I think if he'd had the support of his superiors, uh, particularly the general commanding um, in the region, he would have, his plan probably could have worked. Um, but it kind of gets sabotaged along the way because his superior doesn't like the fact that he's got this little major by this point. He's been um, made chef de bataille, um, which is the equivalent of He's managed to make it. Because uh, Napoleon qualifies as an artilleryman. That's, that's always his focus mm-hmm. and his preoccupation the whole way through. It's the only thing um, I can't say against him. Yeah. <laughs> and so he does a really good job of kind of reorganising the artillery, bringing loads of um, pieces together. At one point, he's injured, leading an attack on a fort. He ends up with a British bayonet stuck through his thigh. Um, at one point, there's talk about maybe they need to amputate, but that never happens. I mean, imagine how different history would have been if that had been the case. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't really got any issues with his time at Toulon. It's kind of Napoleon working really hard, doing what he does best, kind of organising things, injecting some energy, coming up with a good plan and, and making it work. And he's eventually able to position artillery in such a way that the British are forced out of the primitive defences that they've built around the Bay of Toulon and is then able to fire on the British fleet. And as soon as that happens, the British obviously pull out. They can't risk their warships. And they haven't kind of prepared for this eventuality. There haven't been sufficiently well-laid plans 
to burn the French fleet. And so the French are able to, in effect, recoup most of their Mediterranean fleet off the back of what Napoleon does. And it kind of, it's really important in terms of him receiving promotion. Quite quickly, he becomes Brigadier General off the back of that. Um, but then turns down a posting to the Vendée to put down more royalist uprisings because, quote, there isn't enough glory in it for him, which gives you a flavour of the guy. He's always chasing something that's going to sort of further his name. Oh, dear. You say, you say nothing gets too long. The day after it's captured, 200 collaborators are shot with no trial. Um, Is that just Napoleon, though, in fairness? That's not just Napoleon, but he's now taken over command and he's not exactly stopping this. And these aren't no, like, that's true. killing suicides. There, there, there is now exe- mass executions in the streets. I mean, there are other points when slaughtering civilians is definitely his, his thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. I think we're, we're coming to, to those, one. aren't we? <laughs> um, Marcus has got that on his list. Um, Marcus, can you? Do you have to give him credit for the bridge at Arcole? Not as much as he's given. Um, <laughs> basically, he's like, no, no, I do not. <laughs> uh, dismiss. Uh, no, uh, so Arcole's really important for the uh, what I always term the cult Napoleon. I think that's that's Berzak. Um, yeah, he's really, definitely. yeah, he's really successful in building up himself or not discouraging it. And it still persists today. There is a Bonapartist political movement. There are people who would genuinely have his picture above their bed or in their study. It's quite, it's quite big in ways that we don't see of other people. It, it's worse than that, though. I mean, I've seen people kissing symbols of Napoleon, whether that's um, busts of him or things like French imperial flags from this period. Um, Later on, we'll talk about a guy who Marcus and I dealt with on Facebook who um, refused to listen to any sense of reason whatsoever. But that relates to um, Waterloo and, and Borodino. So we'll, we'll save that for you. Oh, wow. I was going to yeah. say, you must get a lot of it. on. There must be a fair uh, uh, amount of loons on social take, media. It takes up too much time. And I mean, if cold. you think of Trump's ultra-loyalist fan base, oh, the, the politics doesn't um, correlate. And we'll get no. to that as well later. So I'm not saying Napoleon was Trump at all. But if you think about the utter kind of blind belief in everything that comes out of Trump's mouth that some of his supporters have, you can get the exact mirror image of that when it comes to Napoleon. And we've we've had people, because um, Marcus and I spend a lot of time trying to inject kind of a, a subtle bit of nuance into these A people. lot more subtle than what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people <laughs> just won't have and they'll just kind of blindly scream Napoleon's own propaganda without actually yeah, questioning yeah. it. And, and that's really the problem. And, that, that... and that's actually our call. That's exactly it. So at our call, he basically uh, is leading uh, a battle and it's, it's all based around this bridge. And there is beautiful painting of this young Napoleon with long brown hair, glittering blue eyes, with a, with a tricolour flag in one hand and a sword in the other, charging at this bridge. And then there's always close-ups paintings of him looking like some sort of Prince Charming with the perfect He looks great. Waft. Uh, yeah. He looks stunning. Like, um, I'm trying to think, it's more of a Hugh Grant kind of figure. Is it a lie? Absolute lie. So what he <laughs> does is he, he grabs the flag. He runs forwards and then he sees that the bridge is, anyone who's going onto the bridge is getting shot. So he stands on this little mound just to the side, plants the brick, uh, flag there and starts waving everyone forwards. In fact, it draws so much attention from the far side that there's a general stood at the front waving that people are getting shot left, right and centre. That one of his men basically grabs him, effectively bundles him down the uh, slope. He stands up all covered in mud and they push him back down again, going, just stay out of the way. 
and he's just absolutely filthy, bit like dejected. And he's nowhere near actually staying foot on the bridge. But all the paintings have him on the bridge and certainly paintings that were like commissioned whilst he was emperor. And he's never, never going, actually, wasn't there? Uh, no, he's quite happy with having his image of him being right at the front, sword in hand, ready to fight the enemy. But he nearly never gets there on, never a few, gets on a few levels. So he has this thing I mentioned earlier about the Brigadier Generalship mm. and him turning down that post into the Vendée. He's then put on the sort of chief of staff um, for um, Paris. And he's, he's basically unemployed. He doesn't really have a job. He's kind of shot his opportunity, really, um, to kind of keep clawing his way up the career ladder. And what happens is there's an uprising against the government and the Napoleon kind of ends up being the man of the moment. He basically gathers together a whole load of artillery. He's given command of the Paris garrison as the, the government, key officials in government um, start to realise what's happening. And he is basically told, look, defend the government, do what it takes. So his solution is to basically get all the artillery that he can possibly find, ride it through the streets of Paris at breakneck speed, nearly running people over in the process. Women <laughs> and children flying. Genuine, yeah, but it gets worse than this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he positions it, um, covering key approaches to the main government buildings. And a crowd gathers, which consists of protesters of various kinds, including women and children. And he gives the order to fire. It's known as the whiff of grape shot. And basically these civilian protesters, admittedly some of them were probably armed, um, are basically mown down. Nobody knows the number of casualties. Napoleon deliberately doesn't kind of bother to count the casualties. He doesn't want that kind of staining the success of what he's done. And it's because of his success in that that he becomes this um, kind of figure. He's on sort of the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, becomes a household name. That's what I'm looking for. And um, it's off of that that he actually gets the posting at Italy because before that point, he's been putting all of these plans together and nobody's interested in his plans for Italy. He's very good with artillery. He's known to personally yes. sight guns later in his career and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say he's doing it uh, in the streets of Paris. And he's often thought of as being this continuation of the, the revolution. He's leading the, the liberalism, the reforms for the people. And then he turns around and shoots them with canister shot, which is like giant shotguns, hundreds of like giant shotguns, point blank against women and children. Some, some armed people too, definitely. Mm. Um, it, there's an angry mob, but there's definitely unarmed civilians mixed in with that. Speaking of, let's give this one to Marcus because he's going to love this. Egypt, massacres and a Jesus complex. Yeah, that sounds like a good title for a book, doesn't it? Yeah, um, <laughs> sounds like a opinion. Channel 5 documentary, but let's move That would be, that'd be my, uh, probably my biography <laughs> of Napoleon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, go, he goes off to Egypt. He does a fantastic campaign. Got to give him the credit for the, the Battle of the Pyramids, um, fighting against the Mamelukes, uh, kind of an Ottoman Empire offshoot. But doesn't that mainly consist of forming square and letting the Mamluks come to them? Because yeah, so basically, they, they do this thing of just charging at squares, and so squares they've got fantastic squares. cavalry with camels, and yeah, so they form square, which is like a four-sided, four-rank deep, fixed bayonets, and just wait there. for them to commit and, suicide. And they're basically charging at you. It's like shooting fish in a barrel; you just can't miss. Mm. It's a fantastic tactic. It works. Yeah. It's, it's not difficult, but it's why you do it, isn't it? Wellington does the same thing at Waterloo when yeah. the French charge in. So <laughs> when Ney does it, yeah, um, it, it does work. Um, but yeah. It, Got to give him, give him some credit for that one. Uh, and then he ends up uh, after capturing the uh, city of Jaffa after a long siege. And this is where I was saying about the massacres. Uh, he waits for quite a while 
and then he executes like all the like Ottoman prisoners he's got. Estimates range anywhere between 1,000 and 5,000, but safely to say like two to 3,000 prisoners. And we're not talking prisoners like straight after a battle. We're not talking like, you know, they're uprising in, in jail. Like, they're just sat in a prison and he effectively doesn't want to feed them anymore, doesn't want to look after them, and he just kills them all. Yeah, there are two sides to that, which is one is that he finds out that the a lot of these prisoners were soldiers that he had released on the condition that they wouldn't fight the French again. Um, and that's kind of a slightly naive thing, I think, to expect that if you release these soldiers that they're never going to fight your nation again. Um, Especially but, when you're in their homeland. Well, yeah. Um, but, I mean, you can turn around, uh, turn around and say, OK, look, but they broke their word. This was a condition, forfeited their lives in the process. But what people don't bother to mention if they are prone to pain, is that in amongst these, it's probably about two to 3,000, as Marcus says, um, are, again, women and children who end up being shot as well. Um, and the, the argument goes, well, look, he couldn't have fed them all. And he didn't have the men to guard them as prisoners. And so he effectively had a choice of abandon his campaign um, and leave the, these people alive or kill them and be able to carry on with what he's doing. But whichever way you spin it, you can't justify killing women and children, in my opinion. Mm. Not even in the military era of the time. I don't think it's justifiable. It wouldn't have been acceptable under the, the general codes of, codes of war. Um, and so he, he kills them all. Um, effectively. I think they, they start shooting and then they get bored of reloading. And so they fix bayonets and start, oh start stabbing away. Um, and you can imagine there would have been terrible scenes. Then he's kind of, he kind of gets some sort of karma for it, but not personally. His army in the city suffered from a traditional like, biblical plague and uh, boils, pestilence kind of plague. Um, and this is where the Jesus complex comes in. There's, he starts walking through, they like put in like hospital quarters and he starts walking through them and like touching their boils. I think it'll make them feel better that their generals seem to not fear it. And I'm thinking... This is less like Diana going to, you know, shake hands with an AIDS victim. The more somebody who's starting to believe he actually might have the power of the touch. Mm. It gets very strange in walking amongst the plague victims. It starts to have that air of kind of like the king curing scrofula by touching it, doesn't it? That kind of tradition of great people having this unique if magical I ability. I my hand upon your head, you're mm. cured. Exactly. And it ties in quite neatly with him starting to think about going back to... Um, France to uh, basically take control of the government in a coup. Oh, and so what he then... Funny you up... should say that, because he leaves <laughs> his entire army mm-hmm. starving, dying of plague. Uh, they've already been defeated at Battle of the Nile. Um, our friend Nelson's kind of come in and destroyed his uh, navy, so he can't win the campaign. Uh, but I don't blame yeah. him for that, though. Um, you because... don't blame him for leaving all of his men to die. No, I, I don't blame him for the Nile. I blame him for... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I blame yeah. him for... <laughs> Marcus was ready to get fighty then. <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to so through the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't blame him for the Nile because I think the credit for that goes to Nelson. Um, yeah. the, the French fleet was kind of anchored in Abakir Bay in, a, in what you'd kind of expect. And Nelson takes a bit of a gamble and he kind of gets his fleet behind the anchorage um, point which was risky because you've got the French fleet, you've got a small strip of water and then you've got the shallows so his fleet could have run aground 
Um, so that was uh, what I use a technical term for this, a, a ballsy move uh, by, by Nelson there. So I, mean, I don't blame... If you're going to give credit to anyone, like Nelson is a, a risky um, strategist, a risky admiral, mm. and, and Napoleon doesn't really know how to use his fleets very well. We see that time and time again. Um, and that's why the Egypt thing goes wrong, because with that bad. fleet crushed, he can't get resupplies, he can't get reinforcements. There's nothing to protect those convoys coming in, uh, which is part of the reason why he does this uh, move up into the Middle East. But the whole strategy for the Egypt campaign is kind of typically Napoleon, really ambitious, but nobody sort of quite seems to have dotted all the I's and crossed yeah. the T. I mean, we say Egypt, he's pushing into like modern day uh, Jordan and all the way up the coast. This is yeah, I mean, Jeff big... is Israel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> plan beyond that was Bump. potentially can we use Egypt as a base to strike into India now if you look at a map that's kind of Alexander the Great style thinking and oh, yeah. again we kind of come back to that thing of kind of great man thinking and kind of being a big fan of people like Caesar who he who we've got evidence of him kind of idolizing from very early on um, so yeah this whole it comes back to this whole kind of messiah complex of so he can do anything and nobody can stop him Caesar complex. That's going to end well, isn't it? Right. Okay. You've mentioned the coup. What happens? Yeah. So he he comes back. He's noticing again. He's left his men. Uh, sometimes it years to get home if they survive. Um, and they never fast, go back and get them. They just have to figure it out themselves. They much. get defeated by the British in the end. Yeah. They they, they fight it on a bit. Um, Britain goes over and sends a, quite a small expeditionary force. Um, and they fight, uh, again, actually some quite good battles, but we'll, we'll get into that another time. Mm. Um, and the, most of them get left, uh, very few ships left that came, come back and get them. And some of them do take, if they survive, take a long time to get back. Um, and so Napoleon kind of comes back himself and he, he rewrites the immediate history, going, yeah, that was a, that was a really good trip to Egypt. That went really well. Uh, my, my troops out there, like, <laughs> Having a little colony, little hol- holiday, you know, it's just like the south coast of Spain. Having, having all the drinks, sites, saw the, the, saw, saw the pyramids, saw the pyramids. Got the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, got, brought got back the Rosetta stone. stone. Does he not get blamed for shooting the nose off the Sphinx? It's, it's not true, is it? No, but I, it's quite funny. It he does go on to a, he does go on a guided tour into a pyramid and gets lost, and apparently comes yeah. out really scared. <laughs> um, there are rumours like. No, it's a bit like Tomb Raider. He sees some stuff in there. See, I'm quite jealous of that because these days you can't go in the pyramids. No. So... You can go in the main one. You basically you? have to, yeah, but it's like, oh, when we went, it was like 50 degrees inside. It's not until you get to the chamber at the top that actually, for some reason, it's very cool. But it's, uh, if you're claustrophobic, that's not a, not a fun experience. And that was just going straight up and straight down. I think if you started wandering around tunnels and stuff and got lots, that would be quite... Yeah, with just the flame torch, you're, yeah. you're talking here. You that's like mummy territory. Very gets eaten by the scarabs. <laughs> I can imagine that, yeah, Napoleon would run away and leave Emma to die from the scarabs. Oh, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> great, great Persian actor. Um, <laughs> uh, Destructor, I think, of Emma Brilliant. He is, uh, and he's Chelsea as well. We love him. Anyway, we were talking about the coup. So he's coup. buggered off home. So he's buggered off home. He's talking about mummies and uh, holidays in, uh, in Egypt. And he's, and he's spun it all as a great success. And basically, he then instigates a military coup. This is not like uh, a continuity continuation of democracy in any sense he thought there's two chambers a bit like you know your uh, your senate and your representatives or your, your mm. commons and your lords 
and he forces his way in with some uh, military officers, leaving his guards outside. Very firm here. His, his army, his guards are on the doorstep. And he goes into one and is like, I'm here. I've heard that you want a new leader. Here I am. And they go, uh, we're in the middle of a debate. Can you, like, go away? So he goes <laughs> off. And he tries to make some speech about, I think this is where he throws in some Caesar references and this, uh, and this following of the revolutionary and, and there's, there's dangers abroad. And they're going, well, this is a really strange scene because at this point, they've uh, been the representatives, the senators, are actually wearing, uh, like, Roman togas, robes. And he's there in full military uniform with a sword saying that he's there to save them. And it's just huge confusion. He gives this speech. It's not very good. Uh, one of his brothers is there. They try to give a speech to save it. And then they all accuse him of um, starting a military dictatorship. Which, lo and behold, is exactly what's about to happen. Oh, I love the French. They're bonkers. Zach, do you want to mitigate that at all? Or is that pretty much fair? It is kind of fair. I mean, it's it's almost worse. I think Marcus is being quite kind about Napoleon's speech. He screws the whole thing up. He kind of has this sort of mini nervous breakdown in the <laughs> middle of it all and genuinely can't get his words out. He just kind of starts talking incoherently and everybody's kind of going, what the hell are you chatting about? And he has to go and have a lie down whilst his brother, as Marcus has said, tries to salvage the situation with a much better speech, in fairness. Um but the one thing I would say is that it's not just Napoleon on his own. He is encouraged by um, his former kind of, oh, what's the word? Marcus, we're going to have to edit this. Um, Paul Barris. Napoleon's his protege. So he's, he's encouraged by a few people, including his kind of former mentor, a guy called Barris, who's one of the um, leading people in the government. And they've looked at the the way in which the government has completely mishandled um, the conflict. Because you have to bear in mind that throughout all of this period, France is at war. It's not just Napoleon who's fighting France's um, campaigns. And initially, there were a lot of really important gains in Italy, thanks to Napoleon. He gets this kind of nickname, the Italian whirlwind. That's how he is trusted with the Italian uh, campaign. But it's also seen as a nice opportunity to get this really famous, really popular French, this uh, kind of French hero, out of the way, go send him to Egypt where he can't make trouble for us and kind of be a, an opponent to us and, and topple the government. Clearly that didn't work out very well. But <laughs> um, during the time that Napoleon's out in Egypt, the French have lost their gains in Italy. They've lost their gains in Germany. And it looks like the government is sort of just a little bit incompetent. And that's why he has this kind of sense of, I can do so much better. And why he comes in and sets up this consulate system where you've got three consuls and, and he surprisingly makes himself the most important of those. Does he also yeah, not completely reduce the impact of the other two? Yes. Yeah, so it's meant to be three uh, and they're meant to rotate every year. First consul, second consul, third consul. Yeah. We never get to the second, third. I mean, they still exist. You just uh, rotate gonna, from Napoleon to, to Napoleon. One. one of them actually does <laughs> the bulk of the work for Napoleon, uh, for, for the um, code Napoleon, but uh, uh, he's first consul. And, very sh- and the first year comes and goes, and he's still first consul. And then later on down the line, he's first consul for life. Starts to sound like Caesar <laughs> here, anyone? It's uh, shades it, of Oliver Cromwell here, isn't it? Shades of Oliver Cromwell mixed in with a Caesar complex. And a, and a Jesus life. complex. And a Jesus complex. Wow. And uh, we've got all of that in a, in a Corsican general. It's quite interesting. This can only end well. Right, Marengo. Again. 
he's portrayed, isn't he, as going across on a magnificent white horse, so like a, a demigod. Painting. Mm. If you go to, I think it's in the loop. If you go into this, you've got uh, him on a white stallion. Oh, it's uh, that one. Zach's holding it up. You will yeah, see this. And on his feet, it's got um, it's got the stones of Alexander. And, uh, and it looks he's... like a heavy metal album cover. Yeah, flowing hair again, mm. and the robes rippling back in a heavy. You'd need like a proper wind machine for this. It'd be like yeah. a L'Oreal. You'd need one of those forty grand Beyonce ones that Aero. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's exactly. Steven Tyler said on stage that he had envy, so he went and bought one as well, so he could. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Bonaparte kind of thing yeah. going on. What's the um, issue with this painting, Marcus? Absolute bollocks. Is he um, on a donkey? He's on a donkey. New <laughs> maybe a nag. And he's going, he, he's, his robe is going to be flowing up behind him. He's going to have it, it's cold. He's going to have it tucked up all around himself. And there are, there is a realistic painting of this. And he's like downtrodden, the rain pulling his hat down, his coat up. It's going to be a bit more of a scene out of The Hobbit, where they're all like the mountains, like trying to kill them. That's what yeah. it really looks like to cross <laughs> the Alps. Can we credit him with the growth of the French Empire? What are the pros and cons of him being in charge? I, I'm keen to hear about the Vatican at some point. Yeah. Um, yes. He, the thing that Napoleon really can do, and the thing that nobody can take away from him, is that he's very good at warfare. And the empire is built, really. And the problem, ultimately, for the empire is that it's built on Napoleon. And him having this kind of, hey, let's see what happens, opportunistic approach. So with the crossing of the Alps that leads to the Marengo campaign, his purpose there is to recapture what he'd captured, first of all, in the 1790s in Italy and re-establish what eventually becomes the kingdom of Sicily with, surprise, surprise, guess who is his head? Napoleon. Um, and uh, there are points when Napoleon's ability on the battlefield um, kind of deserts him. The Russian campaign, which we'll get to in a minute, is the obvious example. But Napoleon is very good at moving large numbers of men very, very rapidly in such a way that they can come together at vital moments and encircle and, and hammer his enemy. And it's only with time that he fights. There's an irony in this as well, actually. It's only in time that because he fights his enemies so often and is always pursuing this kind of overwhelming victory over his enemies um, and ex extracting extortionate um, peace terms off the back of it, that he's able to build his empire. But then over time, they learn his tactics they learn to fight like Napoleon. And there's an, the irony comes in the fact that he himself is alleged to have said that you shouldn't fight your enemy too often because they learn your way of making war. And that's Do you exactly know I'm seeing massive parallels with Jose Mourinho here, came sweeping in with all these new tactics in 2004, 2005. Uh, everybody learned how to deal with them. He didn't involve and now he's a raving loon. He is a reincarnation of Napoleon. Okay, I was just going to say, yeah. even like Zach and I, like, we say Napoleon like anti-Napoleon, but actually we just try to balance out the absolute like cult bullshit. Um, and but even we, we can't say he was a bad general. He, he was a good general. He's very good. He does have the advantage of like introducing mass military conscription, which is hugely unpopular, uh, but he is, he is a good general. Somebody else's idea though, conscription, living on mass, We're gonna way before up. his time. Oh, um, so more. Well, on mass. He is also a loon that tries to kidnap the Pope, right? 
like does kidnap the Pope. Um, (laughs) But we're not just talking like, oh, we're going to invite her for dinner and put a pistol on the table. He invades the Vatican, like full-blown military invasion into the Vatican, pulling the Pope out by his short curlings and putting him into into an exclusive house arrest so he can do whatever he wants. Pope's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of power over Italy and as much as the revolution has tried to get rid of um, religion in France, Catholics, you know, are still going to be loyal to somebody other than Napoleon. So they're listening to the, the Pope for uh, moral guidance and also some legal guidance. You know, um, Catholicism is going to uh, follow um, your code on who do you give your money to and your marriages and um, some of the um, civil context. It's a really difficult uh, relationship for uh, Napoleon, and he tries to negotiate for a while. Uh, and the Pope's mostly interested with sitting in. The, what then? The Papal States are a bit bigger than the Vatican. They're, they're a small kind of like principality uh, in the centre of Italy. But he goes on a full-blown war and invades the Vatican. Because this is at the point Italy's not a country yet, is it? It's not unified, so no, the Vatican not, not is unified. its own state. Yeah, it's, full, it's a fully um, it's a fully fledged country. How does this end for him? Oh, well, uh, badly. He, he has to wait uh, quite a while and then uh, release the Pope. Um, oh uh, and basically tries to make the Pope promise that he's going to not meddle uh, in France. He has to uh, give some concessions to the Catholic Church and set it back up because, funnily enough, people want their, their churches back. And having um, the church under full control of one man Anyone. Um, well, this is the thing. We're now rolling Caesar into Jose Mourinho into, into Henry Oliver VIII, Cromwell, into, into Henry Oliver VIII. Cromwell. Yeah, These just gets better and better, doesn't it? Great parallels, but I don't think they're completely <laughs> untrue. Uh, I mean, during this all, depending on your uh, religious bent, um, Napoleon is excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Um, so he's. Uh, yeah, it's not really a surprise. He's, he's kidnapping the Pope. Uh, but he is excommunicated. And this is where some of the cartoons we talked about earlier come really big. They were talking him like a little fiend, of course, called fiend. This is where they start calling him the devil, the Antichrist. These cartoons take on a whole new level where he's got like a forked tail. He's eating babies on a trident. Oh, uh, baby Britain, eating. Bit of baby eating. Um, even Britain, which obviously a Protestant country, is going, oh, the Pope doesn't like Napoleon. We can we can take this for some political propaganda and it just plays it's, straight into uh, into our hands it's something that bubbles had bubbled for a long time though hadn't it because i mean if you think about when he becomes emperor he invites the pope and the pope has to stand there and not crown napoleon because napoleon decides that the only person who can crown napoleon is napoleon so we're back to that whole kind of messiah complex all over again and the pope is literally just an onlooker kind of there to sort of bless and add credence to this whole ceremony where Napoleon basically reinstalls himself as the emperor of, in effect, the king, except he calls himself emperor. Um, but he tries to establish this hereditary monarchy, in effect, in, in a different name. Oh, the Pope's completely an onlooker. He's, he's got the crown. We're talking about he's, he's gone from first consul to life to emperor. He takes the crown, puts it on his own head. It's not having a Pope put it on his head. He then takes the crown off the cushion and puts it on Josephine, his wife's head. He does the crowning ceremony, completely bypassing the Pope. Just briefly tell me, did Josephine ever rein him in or does she support? She wasn't interested. Really? He was besotted with Josephine very, very early on. Um, But she, 
So it's an interesting relationship because we talked about Napoleon's mentor earlier on, a guy called Barris. Now, um, Josephine had previously been um, one of his mistresses. And so in effect, it's thought that Napoleon's kind of encouraged to marry Josephine mm. in order to kind of remove his mentor's mistress from creating some kind of awkward situation. So um, a case of kind of getting somebody else's seconds, if you like. Um, Now, Josephine, Josephine had a string of lovers. Um, She had a couple of kids by that point. She'd been married before. Uh, She, I can't remember what happened to her previous husband. Did he get executed during the revolution? he He was executed, guillotined full-blown, and she was in prison awaiting execution. Um, but the thing about French revolutionary politics is that everything changes on a dime, and so you get things, different governments constantly coming in and going out. Um, so she ends up not being executed, obviously. She marries Napoleon, isn't particularly interested. He, within a couple, in fact, for a long time, she refuses to marry him. They marry shortly before he goes off to fight the first Italian campaign in the 1790s, mid-1790s. Um, and within weeks, she's carrying on with the lovers that she had before she married and met Napoleon. She, she's got no interest. It's a marriage of convenience. One thing that I find very strange about Josephine is that's not her name. That's the name that Napoleon gives her. Because it sounds very a French. Bit controlling. Yeah, she's Marie Joseph Rose, Tasha. Um, she's known so, as Rose, actually. That's so the name she's known as Rose. Like. <laughs> she's got, as in an English Rose. She's known as Rose, but her first name's Marie. Her middle name is um, Joseph, actually. And uh, Napoleon kind of picks on that and says, oh, you know, my little Josephine. And he starts to play that up. And I just find it a bit controlling, like a bit strange. that He's changing her name from her first name or her given use name, Rose, and choosing another one. It's almost like rebranding her, possessing her. Yeah, but Marcus, we're talking about the guy who rewrites his own name builds the largest empire France has ever seen, controls it all through an authoritarian dictatorship and military Yeah, police. maybe his sexism like, pales into insignificance. Yeah, but the misogyny is kind of an afterthought. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of seems out of character from what we know about the guy, you know? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Guys, you've already mentioned military reforms um, with the conscription. He's not an innovator, is he? No. So the two things that people bang on about are massed batteries. That's taken from a manual that he read um, during his time learning his trade at military school. Um, And actually, there's no big difference in the way that 
um, in the, the ratio of artillery to men. So it's often said that Napoleon loved to have as many guns as he possibly could. Actually, he's averaging out about three guns to every thousand men, which is still more than the British. What does he call his guns, if this is not going to get weird? Yeah, his big girls. His big girls or his beautiful daughters. He like kind of mm-hmm. almost like sexual. <laughs> his his face. God. <laughs> there is nothing about this man that isn't massively creepy. What about the Code Napoleon, which I'm not surprised he names it after himself. Well, but the Code naming Napoleon. Naming it after himself, his, he's got his greatest achievement ever of reforming all of the things, apparently working tirelessly through the night writing this new document. Someone else wrote it, right? You're going to tell yes, me? Yeah, yeah, of course he did write it. Uh, he barely supervised it um it was actually so we were saying earlier it was actually the second consul um who you know doesn't do a lot of consuling uh because uh it, it's jean-jacques uh, regis de Combres. i hope i pronounced that right um he's the second consul and he basically leads like a, a project team he gets a team of uh, half a dozen lawyers and they sit down and don't get me wrong french law at this time needs reforming it's it's like changes from the north to the south it changes by county the law within paris is different to the laws of the suburbs of paris and it, it massively is biased towards uh, a the aristocracy still and b um the church so it needs reforming but napoleon kind of goes look we need to reform it gives it to one man to do he works tirelessly on it with a small team and completely like rips everything off and starts again Napoleon comes in with some very strange suggestions, like if you're doing um, inheritance on its twins, it's very complicated. And Napoleon comes in with going, yeah, well, the second one out is obviously the first one in. So the second twin's older than the first. And he comes up with some very strange, what I would almost call like a bit backward thinking uh, suggestions, but doesn't rise to it. Yeah, I mean, it's put pen to paper. It's important that you, like you said already, that we do give the credit for the fact that French law needed a rewrite at this point. Yeah, and this is something they've just lopped the heads off of most people, haven't they? So, (laughs) well, this is why that that does mess up your legal system. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) there has been a kind of anarchy, if you like, in France for a good chunk of the revolution, and if Napoleon provides one thing, it's a period-ish of stability. Admittedly, it's stability through war, but it is a kind of stability and a longevity that could have been much longer, ironically, if he'd been willing to kind of compromise and kind of scale back some of his demands when it came to peace negotiations and so on. Um, But there are some significant drawbacks for women that should be acknowledged. I was going to ask how do women and slaves fare at this time, because slavery is obviously a hot topic, isn't it? Well, the French Revolution bans... It's banned during the French Revolution, slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon brings it back in. Um, yeah. Um, and and, for and women, also just bring it back in later on, enforces it in Haiti. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, if people want to look up Toussaint Louverture, the, um, the Haitian very Revolution, revolution uh, which is the anniversary yeah. of this year. Um, um, and there's a whole podcast to be done there. To be yeah. And if we're talking on this, also... Number they then start massacring the slaves after they recapture So, I mean, it's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Men, women, children again, uh, unarmed, yeah. who are fighting for their own uh, freedom, massacred because Napoleon wants to reintroduce slavery because he's running short of money because of all the conscription and all the wars. 
And when it comes to women's rights, you've got a situation where women gain quite a lot out of the French Revolution because you've got these kind of ideas going around of to what extent can women be equal? And no, let's be clear, nobody's suggesting complete equality, nobody's suggesting universal female suffrage or anything. We're not going that kind of egalitarian. But when Napoleon's code comes in, it basically makes women subservient to a patriarchal society where the husband or the father has complete control over the woman and all of her belongings. Um, <laughs> I really wish you could see what Alex is doing right now. <laughs> There's a hand gesture going on. <laughs> so although the Code Napoleon does have a longevity and it is exported around the world because it is a comprehensive set of, in many cases, quite well thought through, um, well laid out laws. And that is a significance that even if you're quite anti-Napoleon, you people tend to turn around and say, look, co-Napoleon lasts and it lasts for a reason because it was needed. Mm. But as Marcus has said, the extent to which it all comes out of his brain is debatable and nobody who's a big fan of Napoleon ever wants to acknowledge, acknowledge the drawbacks of which there are significant ones. Let's go. You say exports, like ex export via bayonets. Let's be fair here. He's I wasn't into like places yeah. like Spain. Yeah. That's, that's because true. he conquers the country. <laughs> yeah, but it's I always being held up as going to all these other nations. But if if you conquer them, remove their um, legal system, you've got to replace it with something else. So yeah, there is that. But yeah. I was thinking more kind of beyond Europe. So um, I've yes. been speaking to people lately who've been working on things like South American uh, constitutions, and they draw quite heavily on the Napoleonic Code. So it has a a life beyond Napoleon. Yeah, there were there were parallel revolutions going on. But it was very handy because it was it was in all one handy document. Um, you get to it. It's very very well produced uh, by Jean Jacques. I think we've got to give him uh, some more credit in history. <laughs> right. Okay. We are now at the sharp bit, aren't we? Portugal and Spain. Tell me about that first. Right. Napoleon. You know how he said he kidnapped the Pope. Mm. Guess what he does? He basically kidnaps the Spanish monarchy. Um, so <laughs> it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, <laughs> So let me give the context. But he does. <laughs> yeah, basically this is what happens. Um, he, he takes them hostage and tells them to kind of give up the Spanish throne. But we'll, we'll get there. There's, throughout this period, apart from an 18-month span uh, called the Peace of Amiens, Britain and France are almost constantly at war with one another. And it takes its toll on both countries, um, militarily, but also financially. The thing that Britain is able to do is bankroll other nations to fight Napoleon. So it basically pay, it hires other nations' armies, in effect. Mm. It gives them these, these vast subsidies and sort of hires them as kind of these massive mercenary forces um, by forming a series of coalitions against Napoleon. Unsurprisingly, Napoleon gets quite hacked off with this. Um, now, some people say, oh, it's always the British who are kind of causing these wars. That's not true. There are plenty of instances when Napoleon gives as good as he gets. Um, which isn't often acknowledged. And on many instances where other nations are encouraged to join a coalition, it's quite often because they've got lasting grievances from the last time he beat them, where he extracted excessive peace terms. And so in a way, he kind of contributes to this endless self-fulfilling cycle of war. But by 1807, he's reached what is effectively the height of his power. People think right. that the time when he's in Moscow, 1812, is the height of his power. It's not. By that point, it's all falling apart at the seams. Uh, 1807 there's a treaty literally with, with frostbitten bits coming off <laughs> yeah but 1807 he's rocking it's, it 
yeah, he's just signed the Treaty of Tilsit with the Russians, and he sets out what he calls the continental system, which is basically this idea that nobody in Europe is allowed to trade with Britain. And it's a great concept, except that other nations aren't particularly keen. <laughs> so it goes back to that podcast of the day about buying British. Yeah. Um, and the it's a great system if you assume that every other nation in Europe is quite happy to have their economic policy dictated by one guy. But surprise, surprise, they're not. <laughs> and so it starts with Portugal, because he issues this ultimatum to the Portuguese saying you're going to close all of your ports to um, British trade which is a massive problem for portugal a good chunk of their um wine trade is actually with britain and he also issues some demands on um arresting british expats and, and so on the well, Port- it's, it's, uh, i think you're being too kind uh, a portugal has got a military and trading alliance with britain that goes back to 1400s so this isn't like oh we quite like you at the minute this is an old document i believe the oldest standing military and trade agreement in the world as a legal document and two yeah he says close the ports and then what does he say after that i actually want you to declare war on britain a nation that you quite like and get on very well with i want you just to out the blue declare war on britain and under severe pressure portugal do it and they even act upon they try to impound a few royal navy vessels in lisbon um, and then get blockaded by the Royal Navy in return. And no, it works Napoleon's well still turning in the Royal Navy, does it? It doesn't really work well. Uh, but it's not very active or very hard. Um, the Royal Navy actually sent uh, people into Lisbon to, to start a secret negotiation straight away. Uh, but even after they, they, the Portuguese government comply with every single request, still get invaded. Mm, they do. Um, and the Portuguese army isn't particularly... You've got to bear in mind that the French army is very well trained. Yes, it's a conscript force, but it gets honed. Um, it's very hyped on the success of Napoleon's string of victories. Um, it is the leading army in Europe. So the idea that the Portuguese army is going to be able to withstand the might of the French imperial army is, is just ridiculous. There's a lot of parallels with Germany going into Belgium in World War One, isn't there? Yeah. They can't defend themselves. There's not really an excuse for going in, but you're going to do it anyway. Exactly. But actually, uh, they, the Portuguese know they're going to lose, and they don't actually put up any resistance. They don't actually fire a shot to defend Lisbon. They, uh, oh, so apart. like Luxembourg? Yeah, more like Luxembourg. With their they, 600 troops. They know that um, uh, the Portuguese army is okay, but they just know that they're just not going to win this. The one city uh, that the civil powers there lock the gates... Uh, for a couple of days, but no shots are fired. And still, the week after Lisbon is taken, they, the French start executing Portuguese loyalists in the streets. The one great thing that the Portuguese do is they manage to evacuate their treasure fleet. So there's this big rush to get to Lisbon to capture the Portuguese treasury and just take the whole of, the, whole of it back to France and use it to fund France's wars. Um, the Portuguese just managed to get it out in time. With oh, it's like a Hollywood timing. You know, when James Bond cuts the wire and it's on 0.01, they're literally <laughs> running down the streets of Lisbon as the like gangplanks are coming up and they sail yeah. out the harbour. They're sailing the out French. the harbour as the French come into view of Lisbon so they can physically see the Portuguese. Excuse me. <clears throat> they can physically see the Portuguese sailing away with the treasure fleet and the commanders must have known what was happening juno must have known and just thought oh 
Murd, he would yeah. have probably said. So so he was here. Um, but then we get to Spain. Now, Napoleon had obviously had to move his armies through Spain to get to the Portuguese border. Spain was actually allied to Napoleon at this point in time. And that's something that people often like to ignore. Now, there are some who like to turn around and say, ah, but there were plans for the Spanish to attack the French. Um, it's a bit like the suggestion that the Portuguese were going to withstand the might of the French armies. It, nobody in their right mind thought that the Spanish armies, if they did invade southern France, were going to do anything useful or last or even succeed in any remote way. This um, is a big alliance. They fought against the British two years earlier in Trafalgar. This is Trafalgar. really... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, what Napoleon does is moves more and more um, French troops across Spain to the Portuguese border, but also ends up conveniently starting to just leave bodies of troops at key points in Spain, ostensibly to um, kind of more easily facilitate the supply of reinforcements and, um, you know, musketry ammunition and so on. What he then starts to do is just get a little bit bored and think, right, so who do I pick on next? So dumbing it down slightly. But nobody can quite work out why he felt the need to seize the Spanish throne. Some people talk about the Navy and whether or not he was thinking about kind of taking the Spanish Navy and using it in kind of morphing it into the French Navy and using it mm -hmm. that way. Uh, some people question whether he was planning an invasion of North Africa off the back of success in Spain. It's just not clear what the plan was. But what he basically does is kidnap the Spanish monarchy. There's a dispute going on between the king and his son, Ferdinand VII, and he basically summons both of them to Fontainebleau and says, right, what you're going to do, you're both under house arrest, you're going to sign this document revoking your claim to the Spanish throne. And what he then does is this classic Napoleon thing of cronyism, where he gives the Spanish throne to his brother, Joseph. Something we haven't touched on yet is the fact that he puts, he gives all of his, he's meant to be this famous revolutionary. He gives all of his best friends like ducal titles, or princes and counts, and he gives thrones of Europe to his, I always find the term, feckless family. They so we're are, rolling into Trump now, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got the son-in-law. Uh, actually, we do have the son-in-law. Uh, we've, go, yeah. we've got um, generalships going to Josephine's um, children, so his step-children. He's giving thrones to his uh, sisters, now his, to his brothers. One of them is the king of Holland, and he disagrees with him because he wants just a puppetry king. He gives all of Spain to Joseph, the older brother, who is pretty useless. He keeps moving his brothers around at different points in time. And then he marries his sisters to his best friends and gives them thrones and palaces and loot and treasure. Yeah. Oh, and then obviously when we go back to Spain, uh, the Spanish people get quite upset with this and they start uh, a protest. <laughs> Funny that really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they, yeah. <laughs> they, they object to having their monarch decided for them. And there's a bit of a trigger where, so the, their king and their crown prince uh, is under house arrest and um, they basically Napoleon orders now the princesses and the children to be taken to France. So they hear protest in, uh, in Madrid. The dust and, uh, yeah, yeah, Napoleon orders them all to be shot. Uh, and it's called I'm the not sure it's Napoleon in person who... Well, not Napoleon in person. I think we're going more like Joseph here now. Effectively. If we're um, going to be fair, we're going to be another Bonaparte. 
Um, and uh, yeah, they start a huge um, massacre, which turns into the start of a civil war. To be fair to the Spanish army, uh, who were allied to these people like yesterday, um, they start coming into the city, uh, breaking open the armories and uh, defending those armories. And uh, today, those uh, generals, or oh, actually, they're more like, ma- actually, I think they're majors, a bit more junior. Um, these majors break open the armories and uh, they start arming uh, the citizenry, but also their soldiers. And uh, they very proudly start the, uh, they know as the Spanish War of Independence from the, the foreign oppressors, as they kind of, I think, rightly see it. So we know that Sean Bean comes in and that doesn't end well for Napoleon. But how do we get, why is Russia then involved? Oh, so whilst um, Portugal goes to Britain and brings over Sean Bean, the Duke of Wellington and a lot of other people. uh, And Jason Salkey, let's not lose Jason Salkey. We've got to have Jason Salkey, our friend Hugh Fraser as the Duke of Wellington uh, and David Trotton as the Duke of Wellington, Major Hogan. And and Major Hogan, remember, he's now talking to Teresa, our friend, uh, The Needle. Bernard Cornwell does very well writing the newspapers as well. And um, <laughs> and so that starts the Major Hogan's talk to the guerrillas, who are the Spanish people who are fighting for independence. And that's all going on in Spain and Portugal. Mm. That's like Zach and my like, area of passion. So that's a whole other thing. Napoleon, we will do a whole podcast on that. But why is the idiot trying to invade Russia? Oh, because Spain's like so complicated that it's just left and done, done with, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, he spends a little bit of time in Spain. because Yeah, he does. The, the early phase of... The Peninsula War is really, really interesting. Spain turns around to its uh, arch enemy, Britain, and says, help, basically, anything you like, any money, any guns. They don't actually want troops initially, but the British being the British, they have a force on standby that's about to go and invade um, British colonies in South America and suddenly diverts that force, which is under our... Yeah, they're in Cork, and the Duke of Wellington gets given command. Well, he's not, he's Lord Wellesley, then. He gets given command. Arthur Wellesley at that point, but later becomes Wellington. Um, he's sent to the region, goes to Portugal, and then spends the next six years fighting his way backwards and forwards across Spain, trying to kick the French out. Napoleon's only there for a brief window in 1808 to very, very early 1809. Just misses Wellesley Wellington, just misses him. Fights against the general. Yes, yes. Um, when the Spanish have this really astonishing victory at a battle called Bailen, where they utterly humiliate a French force and nobody knows where the hell this victory comes from. I speak to Spanish scholars who kind of say, you know, it was like a dream. Nobody can really kind of um, account for it because the, on paper, the disparity in terms of quality is just huge. But that kind of acts as a galvanizing event for Napoleon. The French armies are pulled back behind the river Ebro. He goes to Spain, launches a very quick kind of classic hit them everywhere, hit them hard, Napoleon-style campaign, and effectively manages to reoccupy the bulk of Spain, even though large sections of the country are still in, the countryside is still in revolt. He then goes back to um, Paris, leaves his local generals and commanders and Joseph to try and manage the situation in Spain, thinking it'll just be a quick mopping up operation. That doesn't happen, but that's, as we say, a story for another point. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he does kind of um, get out of there before the, the campaign's done. He's running back. He uses an excuse that there's like a coup or uh, some political wranglings in France. And uh, he leaves the battle uh, against, he's now going against the British actually, Sir John Moore, and he leaves it before it's complete, uh, which does allow the most of the British army to extract itself in a very Dunkirk style 
uh, onto their ships. Well, it's a campaign, but yeah, he, yeah. he sends part of his force to chase the British towards a place called Corinna in long, the northwest of retreats, uh, through like January snows, and they they get onto these boats, uh, 112 boats and ships, and uh, most of them go back to Britain and then instantly back to Portugal. Meanwhile, he's now preparing the Grand Army. Yeah, well, he gets distracted, doesn't he? Because he's focused on marriage. He doesn't have a male heir. So we're back to Henry VIII all over again. Oh, so yeah. he effectively dumps off Josephine, pays her quite richly for it. Um, she rejects and... a lot of these, by the way. She, he gives her loads of gifts. She accepts the palaces, but some of the gifts she outright rejects. Uh, so she's got standards. Good for her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, if you haven't uh, had time to admire it, the uh, Egyptian service that she's given is actually at Apsi House. And she rejects it, saying, I prefer to stay married to him. She throws a huge tantrum. Uh, because she, he's going, if you can't give me a son, you're no use to me. Henry VIII again. And so what he does is he tries to give himself another air of legitimacy. Because he's always got this hang-up about whether or not he's properly part of the European um, kind of ruling classes. And the bottom line is that he isn't. He comes from minor nobility in a little island in the Mediterranean. And, and it's that complex again, that chip on his shoulder. So what he decides to do is to marry an Austrian princess which is part of a peace treaty that he um, is able to conclude with the Austrians. So he get, he's busy kind of getting married, um, securing a, a, a line of succession. Um, Very strange that she's Austrian. It's got huge hints of Marie Antoinette all over it, which was a bit yeah. of a, a trigger of the French Revolution. The other thing about that period when he's busy trying to have a son is he loses his edge which is what ultimately leads to the issues in the Russian campaign. And the Russians, although they secure the, they sign the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807, they get a bit bored with this whole continental system. And they start... Sign it with a kiss on the lips, by the way. The Emperor of Russia. Was it a kiss on the lips? I yes. didn't know. Because oh, yeah. Napoleon was very convinced that he'd done a good job of um, flattering the Russians are. There seems to be a bit of a bromance. So they, they, well, they actually build a barge... And uh, they sign the treaty on a barge floating in the middle of it, like a river. So I kind of like ceremonially uh, meet the two nations together. And in a traditional sense, the emperor and well, the Tsar seal the treaty with a kiss on the lips. There are very some strange. very odd paintings, um, little miniatures of Tsar, the Tsar and Napoleon. And, you know, they're sort of a little bit too close for just a kind of standard, you know, diplomatic discussion. It's sort of, I think I've seen Saki comments on Twitter about there must have been a bum pinch going on there. I think there's a little great. And is this when he goes on his rabbit hunt? Oh, the rabbit, I can't, I can't remember when the rabbit hunt is. I think, I think this is Alex one we didn't, we didn't mention we we're going to bring up, but I really want Go to on. bring up. Just um, bring it so, up anyway. Um, Basically, I think around after the Treaty of Tilsit, um, Napoleon celebrates. They, what he's going to do is go on a, like a, a grand hunt. Uh, but what they're going to do is they're going to capture. Uh, they order a load of like rabbits, lo like local, you know, fluffy bunnies, uh, to be caged and then released in front of them. And they're just going to shoot them with muskets. And uh, why would you do that to bunnies? Of all the things we've done, massacres in Egypt, <laughs> plague, abandoning your armies. Now I'm really fucking pissed off. And now he's going to cross the line. Now he's going to shoot bunnies for he's no reason. He's going to shoot bunnies, but this is where it gets good. The bunnies Tell me are the hungry. bunnies attack them. The bunnies attack them. Oh, brilliant. They turn around. <laughs> Possibly they think because his uniform's green, it might be food or something. Like, there's some general confusion. 
and the rabbits turn around and jump on Napoleon and he has to like run away from the rabbits. <laughs> it's like Monty Python, these kid like they're not killer rabbits, they're genuinely fluffy local little rabbits and they are chasing away the emperor. I love it. Not only has he failed to invade Russia, but he's failed to take out the bunnies as well. What a knob. I'm seeing it far more as like Peter Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, I want them to be innocent little bunnies. I don't want them armed or in uniform or anything. I just want like people's pet rabbits gnawing on him. Anyway. That has got to go into the cartoon. (laughs) Yes, there are going to be bunnies all over Napoleon lying at our feet on the cartoon. Oh, Bert has just raised his head into the zoom shot. So he invades Russia. Uh, like To summarise, it's like the biggest army that Europe's pretty much uh, seen in this era. He goes in, like no provision uh, set for this era. It takes far too long using you know, narrow roads. And uh, when he arrives, uh, there's one major, major battle of this campaign called Borodino. And this is where Napoleon should be in his element. He's got like the biggest army he's pretty much ever commanded. Uh, he's bringing all these elements together and it's against a huge Russian army that uh, actually builds some fortifications on some heights. And his generals are at their prowess. Let's be fair to them, definitely. Meanwhile, I want to say two miles away, but it could be a bit less. Napoleon sulks. He sits down and he's like, don't give a stuff. Um, his generals go in and do a hell of a lot of work on Borodino and flanking manoeuvres. They ask if they can do really extravagant flanking manoeuvres. They have needed his permission for this and he denies it and he keeps going, just go straight in. You can, you can brush it away. Charge up the middle. Huge casualties. They're kind of winning uh, and then they turn around to Napoleon and say, look, the only, the only reinforcements we've got are the Imperial Guard. The French Imperial Guard, who are the elite of the elites, they've all got four years service, extra pay, better uniforms, and uh, Napoleon just refuses. He likes to hold them back. He likes to basically have them as like a palace guard near him, or send them out when the victory is assured and sweep away, so they're going to win, they're going to win victory. And he sulks. He says, no, they're the only soldiers I've got left. You can't have them. They're mine. So I always think that Borodino is one despite Napoleon. I always think of Borodino more as kind of one of these World War One style precursor battles of attrition in the sense that yes they do succeed but it's a battle that's won through blood essentially and just wearing the russians down um the whole campaign is just poorly handled part of the issue some say is that the army was just too big it was half a million men and you can't really maneuver an army of that size in any effective kind of way i also think that napoleon thinks that he can just kind of fight the battles that he's always fought, sweep in one crushing victory, force the Russians to negotiate peace terms. The Russians don't play that game. They just keep retreating, keep withdrawing, keep sucking Napoleon into the the heart of Russia. And I mean, Alex, you recently did that um, thing for war factories, didn't you? Where you made the point that um, when it came to, uh, the Nazi invasion of Russia in 41, nobody had read a history book. And there's this great shot of you just kind of sadly shaking your head saying, nobody had heard of Napoleon. No, nobody sounds like something book. I say. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't blame him for getting sucked in because there is yeah. no precursor to this. But he gets too carried away. There's one point where he has the opportunity to just kind of stop and winter. And he decides, no, I'm going to keep pushing on. Ends up being drawn all the way to Moscow. In this, in this awesome kind of scorched earth 
um, policy. They even end up burning down Moscow. And Napoleon walks into Moscow, finds it basically burning to the ground around him and realizes that he can't over, he can't stay for the winter in Moscow. He's got no choice but to pull back. And so they have to run effectively for Poland um, through the, through a Russian winter, which as you can imagine, I mean, these people are in woolen clothes. There was the wrong clothing for the summer when it was impossibly hot during the winter loads of men freeze to death um they're harried the whole way by the cossacks it's of the five hundred thousand who go in it's thought that 10 percent survive so fifty thousand make it out oh, that's and then criminally negligent isn't it and what it gets worse um halfway back napoleon jumps in a sleigh uh horse-drawn sleigh and i think the technical term is buggers off uh back to paris <laughs> Is that um, the one where it's alleged that he dresses a woman as a disguise? There is that alleged. Uh, there's another story, which is that he tries to come to a river crossing with a ferry. And he asks the ferryman if he's seen anyone come this way. And he goes, no, I saw 500,000 men go one way and only one man come back. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think the woman one might be a step too far. But it's certainly the fact that something that we did touch on with Spain when he's you know, his army's massacring people. And it's one of my hot topics is that his armies are encouraged to steal loot. Not food for themselves, loot for, for Napoleon's Paris. And in doing so, especially in Spain, uh, rape and murder is used as a weapon. And I've got first-hand accounts uh, from the French officers that have been, they've been ordered to do this. Uh, desecrate churches, uh, rape and kill women. Uh, it's disgusting. They do it in France as well. Sorry, they do it in Russia as well uh, they do it in Russia quite widely because the army is so big they've got to steal from every peasant they come across they're going to burn down the farm and take it if it hasn't had scorched earth that means that when the, Ru the Cossacks the, the Russian cavalry corps are like chasing them that's not the end of their problems every time they come to a village these like dejected men now some of them are still carrying silverware like they're trying to get back to France with a bit of loot um, but they're starting to like disregard their own weapons if they can and things like this they're coming to a village and you're going to get some like old Russian lady come out with a kitchen knife. He's like seen her daughter raped, her granddaughter killed. and he, She's going to be stabbing and cutting the soldier's throat. And there are cases where these soldiers are like sitting down, freezing death by a tree. And the, and the Russian peasants, especially the Russian peasant women are coming out. They're killing them. There's yeah. no mercy. Reprisal killings are not unusual in Spain and Portugal. And as you say in Russia, because, I mean, initially the French policy is we live off the land. Um, but the trouble is, once you're letting your soldiers take whatever they want in terms of food, it becomes very difficult to pick out that dividing line between taking food and just taking whatever the hell else you want. Um, the French also have this kind of um, way of characterizing martial masculinity, which includes sexual dominance. Um, over men and women um, but obviously particularly during this period taking a kind of rape um, of women having that kind of edge to it um, and yeah it's unsurprising really that the the this is why the the wars become so bitter in Russia and in Spain and Portugal because you've got civilians who just take matters into their own hands and, and exact their revenge. One of, one of the quotes I've got for Spain is this uh... I think, actually, it was a, a cousin of Josephine. And uh, he writes that we gave the, uh, the village the choice 
their women or their church. The, the village chose to save the church rather than the women. But in the end, we desecrated both. These are just disgusting like acts and they are acts that are being planned out by both the junior and the senior commanders. And it's why I, like in reading so, uh, flipped on, a, on, a, on an edge and became very much more uh, anti-Napoleon. And, and I think this is why Marcus and I have such an issue, not with, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I don't want to put words in your mouth here, Marcus, mm -hmm. but from my perspective, I can understand somebody admiring Napoleon. I can get my head around people liking Napoleon even because the point has been made by more eloquent people than me that quite often if you like authoritarian style governments um, like strong military commanders you're gonna like Napoleon that's kind of the way that your mind works and he fits very neatly into that and that's it's the fine cult, you know? isn't it that really it's the cult following off. yeah the people who will not acknowledge any failing uh, will not acknowledge any of the bad and if you raise any of these things, they turn around and go, yeah, but what about the British Empire? Which is a legitimate point. And at no point will you find myself, and I think this is also true of Marcus, saying that the British Empire was this wonderful entity that ever did any wrong. Mm. But the point is that we actually, have... A if you dislike empire and empire building and you think the empire did a bad thing, you're going to think that Napoleon's empire did a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. And, people and I think turn the British Empire did loads of bad things as well. <laughs> yeah. They turn around and say, well, Britain's colonial empire, that's different. Well, no it's not these are both empires that are militarily enforced on people who have no interest in them yes there's a racial element to the british empire of course there is but and in fairness to napoleon when he's in egypt particularly there's no evidence of prejudice towards the local population there when he massacres people, he tends to massacre people kind of indiscriminately. Yeah, you know, yeah. But there's no racism in front of the bayonet. I think that's a, that's a good policy, isn't it? Well, let's let's talk about his failings and really wind the lunatics up then, because peace terms are enforced upon him, and even then, you have issues with how this plays out, don't you? Um, and the priorities that he enforces when he's... Because he refuses to accept the terms, doesn't he, yeah. at a cost to his men? Yeah, that's, that's it. Um, they, so by this point, he's retreated from Russia. So all of Europe um, mobilises against him. This is a trigger point. Uh, Spain's been going on as a like, ulcer. Russia is the catalyst. And he's retreat from there, the loss of the Grand Army, everyone. So Prussia has to switch sides and back, Austria, but even Sweden. Sweden's been governed by King Bernadotte, who's actually one of Napoleon's former marshals, and even he's had enough. There's a lot of reasons, but Sweden declares war on France, and it's really the beginning of the end. It's, it's inevitable when, and I don't mean an exaggeration, nearly every like empire, great kingdom, and some of the smaller like duchies and princedoms are fighting against um, Napoleon now. He's going to lose. He goes on and actually fights a really impressive campaign. But he's given the chance to end it, end it and keep his borders. And twice. twice. Twice he's given the chance. Um, so that you've got two. And, and he rejects it. And what does he say when he rejects it? That he thinks he can win. That he can, thinks he can go ahead and um, secure a victory through the blood of effectively his own soldiers. There is a, a point. It. He can in... sacrifice his own men for his like, reign to continue. Yeah, because... There, there are two negotiations um, that centre around 1813, 1814. There's this big battle called Leipzig, sometimes known as the Battle of the Nations. It's the biggest battle that has ever been fought it up until that point in history. It's huge. 
I mean, you've um, even got Saxony in the middle of it, actually, changing sides. Uh, you've got Bernard Dosser Marshall, who's he's coming in and he's got a bit of a quarrel with one of his former comrades. So there's a bit of a personal battle going on between um, a French general and a, and a Spanish king. It is just enormous. I, you're, one of you is going to want to quote, aren't they, on these peace negotiations? Uh, I think Zach's got something good. Well, I mean, this one isn't particularly about the peace negotiations per se. It just kind of captures that sense of Napoleon not really giving a monkeys about the human cost of his conflict. So there's a point where he is reviewing the carnage of a battle and he turns around and says, and I'm quoting here, uh, one Paris knight will replace them all. Une nuit de Paris remplacera cela. Now, excuse the French accent, because as we've established, my accents are apocalyptically bad. But... I don't know, I quite liked your American accent. Really? American you did? That was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't attempt dealing with the Irish. But anyway, let's yeah. get back to <laughs> Napoleon. Um, it kind of... There's another one, actually, where he says that he thinks nothing of losing 10,000 men if it realises his objective. That's, and That's in these peace treaties. 10,000 men. It's just... It captures the breathtaking arrogance of this man, that his personal ambitions which is what we're talking about here we're talking about his empire comes his personal glory comes before what's the good for the french nation these are french citizens by this point who have to be drawn into this fight because for a a good chunk of this part of how france fights its wars is to recruit soldiers from other nations as um, a kind of enforced levy and that's what a large chunk of the uh, army that goes into russia is made up of particularly polish troops by 1813 a lot of it has to come from France, particularly 1814. And he does fight these incredible campaigns. 1814 is just mind-blowing. It's a parallel, really, of what he does in, in his early days in Italy. I think yeah, even the Duke of Wellington reads about it and goes like, my God, that's general shit. Like, mm. that's impressive. It's, it's an incredible campaign because he's got this smaller army that he can pivot and move much faster. So it suits his way of making war. But he's, there's a second time where he's offered worst peace terms by this point because the um the coalition is now on the borders of france you've got wellington having invaded southern france being the first um country to get its troops onto french soil since the early days of the revolutionary wars back in the early 1790s and still he's determined to fight on thinking that he can win one big battle and change everything and that's before we even get to waterloo which is just another story in itself in terms of breathtaking arrogance but before that he ends up on elba arguably where he belongs after causing so much trouble like a naughty child well you'd say he belongs in elba but the british government think it's a bit close and uh, maybe we should be sending him somewhere a bit further away like the falkland islands maybe <laughs> somewhere like that, or uh, you know <laughs> St. Helena, a barren rock in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and uh, he goes to Elba. And what's quite interesting is for just a really short amount of time, and like most of his family uh, deserted, uh, bar one sister. Most of his generals swear um, allegiance to uh, Louis XVIII. It's really like a beast, like really a beast, useless uh, monarch. And um, he's, he's abandoned. But he does t- for a short time. He shows some of his old spark. I think it's like that kind of, it was all getting too big. It's all too overwhelming. And uh, he tries uh, to reform it. Well, I say that. He does actually try to kill himself. Um, he's got a vial of uh, poison around his neck from his time in Russia. And he tries to take it. And 
end it all and he's just violently sick instead of dying I think it makes it quite ill for both ends it's gone off he's had it for too long um, does it actually predate Russia I've got a feeling he's been carrying it around for years yeah, even longer and somehow Russia. thinks uh, I might be wrong um, so if somebody you've got to question to... The, the psychology of someone if someone who's commanding like one of the great, greatest and largest armies in well, let's say the European world carrying around a poison of uh, a vial of poison to kill themselves is quite an interesting I mean there's always that chance that you can be captured um, yeah. given the mentality of Napoleon during the Borodino sorry during the Russian campaign he wasn't going to be kind of leading the front but in terms of his earlier ways of being right in the thick of things perhaps there was a chance that he could have been captured but yeah so he ends up on Elba initially as you say he does this great job of trying to reorganize so many different aspects universities roads hospitals yeah and then he gets bored classic Napoleon (laughs) just gets bored six months well bored yeah and starts to look at returning to France and sees I mean, we talked about this in a podcast before, so we won't go into loads of depth on the Waterloo campaign and its origins. But mm. he sees the, the coalition powers squabbling amongst themselves about how they're going to carve up Europe in the wake of his fall and sees an opportunity to come back, restore himself as emperor and sweep all before him somehow. Um, and it doesn't work out like that at all, because the one thing that unified all these people was Napoleon. As soon as he became a threat again, they, they really got talks. their shit. To... How does he get away from Elba? It's quite funny. He does. Uh, like always back for one last job. Uh, Hollywood classic. Um, he he draws. But it's as tiresome as like Rambo Six, isn't it? Yeah, like, we're like Rambo Seven Point Five almost. Everyone's like, oh, not another war. Um, <laughs> he uh, he's we give him a small army on Elba, like some of his Imperial Guard. Are uh, we idiots? It's only a thousand men. It's only a thousand men, two cannon, like eighty horses, but and and two ships. And what he does is he paints these ships to look British rather than French. And then you you gotta give it like some like like thingish cone of shame to this guy. The governor of the island goes off to see his girlfriend, his mistress in uh, in Italy, and he thinks, oh, you know what? It's only been like eight months. Napoleon's really resigned himself to you know being the emperor of this tiny island he's never going to escape uh, even though it's only a few like a few miles off the coast of france really and uh, he goes off kind of makes napoleon promise he won't be a bad boy and uh, turns it back and goes and sees his girlfriend napoleon draws in his, his small army um and uh, gets onto these ships he's managed to hide in a bay i don't know how he's managed to really hide them paint them bring them ashore and uh, off he slips. He actually he actually sails past uh, a royalist French vessel. And there's a lot of debate whether they see it and turn a blind eye to it, see it, ignore it, or see it and uh, actually go, yay, Napoleon's back. And uh, it prevents another war in Europe because at this point you've got uh, a lot of debates over like, places like Alsace-Lorraine, Poland especially is a hot topic, and you're about to have like Austria, Germany, Russia, and uh, Russia go towards with each other uh, over these nations. But lo and behold, they all suddenly see their old enemy come back and they all pretty much like put their port down, draw their swords and go, right, another one. And uh, hence we get Waterloo. Which obviously we have covered in great, which obviously we have covered in great detail elsewhere. It doesn't end well for him. If you want to go back and hear a great, summary of the battle of waterloo with these two it is out there on our back catalogue so he loses 
Um, he sleeps through quite a bit of the battle. He's suffering from hemorrhoids and piles. Yeah, really there's the piles, time. isn't there? He's not. He's can basically. We, he's can we go, yeah. Can we go back to our mental Facebook guy now? Because this is. Oh, yeah. There's we, no evidence of piles because there's no paintings of piles. It, no, but it was worse than that. So Marcus and I were recently on. Uh, there are a number of Facebook groups out there to do with the Napoleonic Wars. This is one of the big ones. This is like the official. Association. This was the Waterloo Association, which I have to say is very well managed by a guy called Gareth Glover. Um, and as soon as I made him aware of what was happening, he dealt with it straight away. Um, but this guy was, he posted a picture of Napoleon um, sleeping through the Battle of Borodino, which we've discussed already, not being one of Napoleon's great moments. Okay. And he captioned it, the great man sleeping at Waterloo. Now, I can't remember if Marcus got to this first or I did. I've got a feeling it might have been Marcus. And he turned Will you said, both like hold my drink? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> hold, hold my, my earrings. I'm going in. We're also doing the bring in the cavalry. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you got to it first and turned around and said, "Look, mate, it's it's not Waterloo. It's Borodino. Here's the link to the original." Um, and then I chipped in and said, "And with the best one in the world, it's documented that he probably wasn't sleeping through Waterloo." he was having some form of medical treatment, possibly for his piles. Now, this guy just turned around and said, no, it's a lie. And so we started saying, so, sorry, what bit's the lie? The fact that we can categorically prove this isn't um, from Borodino or the fact that there are documented sources from the pony's medical team saying that he was treated for piles around the time of Waterloo. And he said both, didn't he? He, he turned around and said both. Um, oh, so he just went full Mel Gibson crap. Yeah, and then his painting yeah, of like, Napoleon sulking it's by a french artist it's a, yeah. it's a lovely painting and he t when we kept pushing the point because you know what i'm like with these things i don't let them drop because i'm just <laughs> pedantic like that um and he said he turned around and went yeah but look at the painting do you see napoleon being treated for piles in this painting i don't think so and i just couldn't get my head around the psychology of this guy who'd paint not a fucking picture of someone <laughs> shitting out paint? Right. so zach and i now want to do a gofundme page to get a painting of oh, Napoleon having piles treated. Don't you think I think we amazing? probably are graphic artists that's working on Great War Group for a laugh would uh, be willing to take on a commission to do like a digital image of Napoleon's piles that's all for the we guy. Need. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't get my head around it. But it's we did spend painting. a lot of time looking at the history of hemorrhoid treatment. It was not a good day. Let's go around the other side of his anatomy. Uh, I, I love this. There's, so there's a documented source of a lady who was banged by both Napoleon and Wellington. And what did she say? So this is Madame uh, George. Uh, there's two ladies that we think have been banged by both, if we're going to use that term. Okay. The lady in the room used that term. And um, there's Madame Grissini. Who it was either banging or Grissini. boffing, and I went for... Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Grissini is a famous uh, opera singer, and uh, she slept with both of them. And then there was Madame George who is uh, like a minor actress and she sleeps with both and writes that uh, Wellington was more vigorous in bed, uh, which kind of, you know, as they say in carry on uh, up the Kyber, keeping the British end up. Yeah. Marcus is like vindicated. Everything I've said about uh, Napoleon is vindicated. That's my boy. <laughs> we started talking about his penis for a reason, haven't we? Well, let's, let's kill him off first and then we'll get to penis gate. Well, how, how does Napoleon meet his end? Uh, can I kill him off and exactly penis? I think, um, <laughs> Exactly I want to kill Napoleon and Zachary like talking about his penis. <laughs> um, it's just sort of our personalities. <laughs> now Zach's doing the hand. <laughs> right, okay. So yeah, he, uh, Waterloo, uh, 
great, great story ever told. Not Wellington's best battle. Um, and do go listen to the podcast and some of the other stuff we've done. Uh, podcasts are quite fun. And uh, Waterloo, he runs away. Funny, let's get a theme. Uh, he tries to fight in uh, Paris. Uh, the French government say they have enough of it. It's a few little skirmishes, but he then runs away and uh, surrenders on a little on a little British ship called the Billy Billy Ruffian to its mates, the HMS Belle Ruffian. He's take he's almost taken to Plymouth. He's not quite. He's then taken to uh, the British uh, like island of St Helena, which is if you put a pin in the middle of the South Atlantic, it's there. Which is directly. where we should have sent him in the first place, right? Right, exactly. With no army. I mean, you're talking thousands of miles to either Africa or like Central America. Yeah, no and army. no boat. And no, no who boat. gave him the paint? Who gave him the right <laughs> well, colour paint? He's got a kingdom in, in Elba, in yeah. St Helena. He's actually um, got a courtyard. Just a guy on around. a rock. He's in a rock <laughs> and it's got guard towers. Um, the British actually put a regiment there to guard. And they're not his regiment. Not his regiment. Right. British soldiers. Uh, he's, he's allowed to take a couple of generals who want to go with him. Um, there's a few. There's like some French doctors, but even they get bored in the end and come back. And he's actually looked after by British doctors. Uh, Dr. Arnott, I actually know one of his descendants. Um, yeah, so he's on this little island. Um, there are a couple of plans, especially from the French who fled to America to maybe go and rescue him. Uh, but luckily, it never happens because even if he went to theorists probably say that he escaped to Argentina. But you know, that's, that's just Argentina. Is he drinking wine and eating steak with Hitler somewhere? Probably, <laughs> probably still today. Probably yeah. going to be frozen. Uh, there's like a Ian Holm uh, film. Uh, the he plays uh, Robert Baggins in The Hobbit, uh, where they do a Prince and the Pauper switch, and he goes to Paris. But that's all. Uh, that's all Prince and Pauper uh, fantasy. So he uh, he doesn't he doesn't live there very long. Um, he. He dies there uh, only five years later, six years later. Um, yeah. yeah, he dies from stomach cancer. Well, he's got severe stomach cancer. It's actually a tear in his esophagus that actually brings about the end for him. He has quite a, an unpleasant last few years of his life. Um, he's in pain. There's a lot of, yeah, he's in a lot of pain. There's a lot of antagonism between him and the governor of St. Helena. Um, and from a lot of the accounts, it seems that the governor makes life pretty hard for Napoleon in his final days. We but don't give him someone who's going to go off and look after his girlfriend. We actually give him like almost like a jailer. Yeah. Uh, and he spends a lot of the time creating the Napoleonic legend. So a lot of the, the big myths that we have, like some of the big speeches, for example, what, um, from the start of the Italian campaign, where he's supposed to have turned around to his soldiers and said, soldiers, you are starving. You are clothed in rags. Actually, it was written on St. Helena. Never came from um, the Italian campaign. So he uses the time to build this myth and, that's probably why the cult of Napoleon is as strong as it is, because he's one of the few dictators in European history who's had the chance to write his own history before he died, but after he fell from power. He's like, um, he's like officially an ex-dictator. And what I quite like about the, the governor of St. Helena is he doesn't even allow him to be called the emperor. Because legally he's not, because there's a king of France. They allowed him to be the emperor of Elba. So if you want to go and have anything from Bonaparte, you've got to address him as General Bonaparte. And even that's being quite respectful because he's not even a general in the French army anymore. And, and Bonaparte hates this. He only wants to be called your majesty. He gets really stressy about it. And can we just clear up another conspiracy theory, which is that the British um, allegedly poisoned him, which isn't true. The, they did find traces of arsenic in his hair, but that's because they're using paint that's laced with arsenic from the production methods at the time. So there was no concerted effort to um, poison Napoleon. Um, 
And then we get to the issue of his penis. This is a history hack favourite topic. It keeps coming up. (laughs) Anyway, right. So the story goes that during Napoleon's autopsy, the doctor presiding over it chopped off Napoleon's gentleman region, um, had it pickled, and it made its way to America eventually, where it was found and carbon dated and proved to be from the 19th century. So what... I've heard that they keep coming up on eBay and up for auction and that the French government buy them every time and that they've got roughly a dozen Napoleon cocks in their collection. Yeah, someone sold just a foreskin recently, a couple of years ago. Um, someone asked, why didn't we buy it for our collection? It's Can like... we just go back to the point where the doctor went, oh, I fancy a souvenir. I take his little finger if you're a weirdo like you that. You know, people like take hair. a little lock of hair. Yeah, yeah. a lock of hair. And Super... they did the death mask. You know, that's yeah. kind of normal for the era. No, We've got a death mm. mask. We've got some lots well, of hair. Well, that's dangling off. I'll remove that. <laughs> no, what no, the just... fuck? What is quite telling about all of this is that whenever one of these comes onto the market, it's always really very small. There was a Channel 4 <laughs> documentary in 2014 that claims to have found the original um, Napoleon penis. And apparently it measured at 1.5 inches. And I think what's quite telling is that this fits into how the British like to think about Napoleon. Because that's not a penis. That's a chode, isn't it? <laughs> is that what it's called when it's under two inches? There's, there's a name, isn't there, for when... No, I think it's when... Because I've called people this before on social media. The, um, the width is wider than the length. It's called that's a chode. That's I remember from my teenage years, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to say I don't have any experience of that. Just leave it there. Lie. You lie. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Alex is like, I know all the technical terms for tiny yeah. penis. And I've, I've got every so word you could possibly use to insult conspiracy theories on uh, Twitter. I've used it and I have definitely used that. Anyway. I mean, smaller I... than a fluffy rabbit. There we go. Yeah, a fluffy rabbit that's going to attack Napoleon. I love that. <laughs> that's definitely going to be the cartoon for this. The issue I have with the whole it's Napoleon's penis thing is firstly that there are so many of them. There are precedents for this kind of thing. Allegedly, you can... I mean, if you depend on what you like going into your Google search history, but you can Google Rasputin's penis and it's apparently quite an impressive specimen. Um, as I say, the Napoleon ones always seem to not be. Um, but they look just like the... a little grape shriveled up, don't they? <laughs> it's the best way to describe it. Because, of course, I've Googled this. You're all going to go and Google it now and see if you can see what it looks like. But it looks like a little shriveled grape, doesn't it? Don't act like you two don't know. You're both laughing. I genuinely have never Googled this. And this I'm just like, oh, Zach is definitely be Googling this. Well, your phone is in your hand, Marcus. So. <laughs> Zach's, just, Zach's just a mess. <laughs> it's a screensaver on Zach's PC, I thought. <laughs> no, they do. It, it just looks like a, like a, oh, a raisin's a bit cruel, a grape. The issue I have is the kind of, Partly, like you said, Alex, the psychology of it. If you're going to take something, why do you take that? But also the kind of... the Just the international incident that would have surrounded demasculating France's national hero. Because Napoleon was still popular within sections of French society. That's why he was able to come back in 1815. The army flocked to him. He, for them to take off that would require everybody to keep quiet. Now, the odds of that happening are slim to non-existent anyway. You've then got the fact that he was dug up and moved to the Hotel L'Invalide in the centre of Paris. Um, and if you're ever in Paris, 
go to Napoleon's tomb because it is the most incredible. Um, it is incredible, but it's like you do wonder if it's compensating for the fact that the corpse doesn't have a penis because it is slightly um, elaborate, isn't it? It's huge. I mean, when you compare it to where he was buried on St. Helena, which was in this beautiful little valley with flowers, and it was just like a little stone tomb, like it looked like in any British like churchyard, it's completely the other end like marble, domes. Uh, when I was there, they had a little display of his uniform and his hat, and you've yeah, got eagles. Statues. Yeah. Surrounded by angels. The sarcophagus is larger than a two-bedroom flat in London. There are seven of them, I think. They're, they're a they layer inside, don't they? Like, like yeah. the Egyptians. Yeah. Um, but the point is, they exhumed him in order to take him back to Paris. And one of the things that people remark on is the fact that when they took him out... He was perfectly, and I mean perfectly, preserved. And lots of people tried to kind of create some kind of um, Saint Napoleon myth type thing. King Arthur just sleeping stuff. Exactly. And they'd have noticed, you know what I mean? They examined his body. Somebody would have noticed and gone, this is outrageous. And the idea that the French would have just gone, yeah, fine, chop off his his chap. The kind of thing a Frenchman would notice as well. Not to say that the French are preoccupied with penai, but they do quite like virility and culturally, don't they? And they're quite, I think it's the, the most offensive thing. I think if you asked a Frenchman if he's rubbing his both hands or his penis, he'd choose to lose his hands. Just saying, I have a French ex-boyfriend, so... I've just alienated the whole of France for this podcast. Yeah. But I think we've probably done that at some point anyway with all of the Napoleon bashing we do on here guys let's finish off this has been brilliant it's turned into a proper extended special and i'm not going to cut it at all um i want to know what's your favorite portrayal of napoleon i'll lay it out there mine is bill and ted where he's like doing the 32 scoops of ice cream and playing the fucking but he goes to Waterloo, doesn't he it's a water yeah it's a water yeah park yeah and he's at the water park i love 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 that portrayal of napoleon and I have a feeling, is that not the same actor who played the really camp over the top villain in one of the Hornblowers? Oh, is it, um, yeah, it might be. Uh, Robin I Cook? Think, I'm not sure. I, maybe. Robin Cook. Maybe they just merged into one person uh, in my brain. But, guys, what's your favourite portrayal of Napoleon? In, on film, mm-hmm. I mean, the classic is Rod Steiger, because I think he. He fits the image of Napoleon at that point in time really well. Some of the overacting is just hilarious. I mean, I love that moment of La Gare and for no obvious reason, Napoleon goes, I need to check what the weather's doing and looks up into the air at the camera that's suspended. If you're one of the actors, though, there's arguably no way you can overact Napoleon, is there? I get away with pretty much everything. Yeah. Uh, In terms of visual depiction... I love the Gilray caricature, the plum pudding in danger, which is of, um, people will Google this. Um, you've got this tiny little Napoleon carving off a little slice of a plum pudding that's labelled Europe, whilst you've got the British Prime Minister at the time just chopping through half of the globe and occupying that. It's kind of making this lovely statement about how Napoleon, this little person involved with little aims of trying to take over <laughs> Europe, whilst Britain's seen the bigger picture and is just taking half the globe for itself. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of the... the cartoons at the time are just fantastic. Mm. Yeah. I think people really go on about, don't you realise like the British Empire? It's like, we knew then, we were doing it. Um, yeah, for, for me, I mean, Rod Steiger in Waterloo, filmed in 1970, just fantastic. What a great film, Christopher Plummer's Waterloo, as Wellington, just brilliant. 
But, I mean, Napoleon and Blackadder back and forth. Pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, they're all like prancing around with handkerchiefs and it's deeply, deeply offensive if you're French or, I guess, Corsican. Um, but it's very funny. Um, I quite like it. They, they say that we're going to war because of like the, the insults that we make over France and it's only a little bit off the truth. Some of the horrible histories ones are great as well. They, the, where they kind of capture some of the petulance that comes through in, in some of the, the real quotes. Yeah, and they do, and they do uh, Napoleon with an Italian accent as well. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. This has been epic. Uh, I feel like we have really given everybody an overview of Napoleon, probably one that will make French people cry, but French people, just give us a call and we'll let you have your say. Everything we've said, as far as we're aware, completely true, but completely biased. Yes, <laughs> but we said at the beginning that that was going to be the case. To be fair, I think Zach has done a pretty good job of not making his career implode today. Can we just point some people in the direction of some stuff if they want to actually go and fact check of course. some of this? Because there are a few decent books. If you are a Napoleon lover, then your Bible is a book by Andrew Roberts called Napoleon the Great, the Great. Um, which tells you everything you need to know about um, Andrew, who is a nice enough individual Andrew, really nice man really really good historian he's the opposite yeah. to us he loves yeah. napoleon yeah philip dwyer's done this brilliant three volume biography of napoleon um yes there's a lot of it there's a lot to get through but it's incredibly detailed um if you're looking for something a bit more popular owen Connolly did something called blundering to glory he's very pro napoleon philip dwyer's very anti-napoleon um and michael brewer's is um, doing a, a series, um, Soldier of Destiny. So there's plenty out there. Um, bear in mind, though, that Napoleon's like historical marmite. There's people love him or they hate him, and there's very little kind of middle ground. So vary your diet essentially of, of what you're reading. If you only read one source of Napoleon, you are only going to get one side of the cookie, really. Guys, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Uh, once again, you have been an awesome double act. I know we also do have in the bank a great interview with Zach on crime and punishment in the British Army at this time, which is his PhD, uh, which is really interesting and really good and gives you a really good uh, reality check <laughs> about the British Army, which is quite possibly needed. Uh, guys, you will be back down the pub. I think we're debating the greatest book in history, aren't we, next time? We are. Yeah, I'm going to see who I can steal um, from this Still time. Because I, I got Lena's last time. Um, James is the time before that. So I might just it. select the best suggestion I get and pass it to you, and we'll just let you go first and then laugh. Deal. I mean, it's, it's obviously horrible histories anyway. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, guys. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when Josh Proven will be with us to talk all about the Hawaiian monarchy. He and I had an absolute blast recording this one and there is a quite shameless appeal for a free trip to Hawaii for both of us if you care to listen all the way to the end, so don't miss that. And then in the evening, Owen Griffiths will be back to tell us why there is a dragon on the Welsh flag. He's got some more folklore for you, one of the big ones, one of the most famous, and he's going to share that for you for over the weekend. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 